Turn just briefly this morning to the book of James, chapter 1. A lot of things that were said yesterday um, prompted several thoughts in my mind. Um, and I thought about coming up here and just re-preaching those sermons to y'all. Uh, but my wife and children were there, so don't want them to think I'm a plagiarizing thief. But nonetheless, uh, there were a lot of good things that were brought to our attention yesterday. Uh, and I will borrow a concept uh, that Brother Charles brought out to us yesterday, a little bit later in our message this morning. Um, but for right now, we'd like to begin in the book of James, chapter 1. James is a... Uh, it's often been described as the epistle of applied Christianity. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a preacher friend of mine many years ago who had uh, began preaching through the book of James, preached a, 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 an entire series on, on the book of James. And uh, during the middle of his, his preaching, he got a call from a brother, state out, a brother out of state somewhere, and he said, you know, I've, I've, while I've admired your ministry for so many years, uh, it, it hurts me to know that you are departing from the old Baptist. And he said, what in the world have I said to make you think I'm leaving the old Baptist church? He says, well, you, you preached a whole series out of the book of James, and grace preachers don't preach out of James. Friends, if it's in the Bible, it's in there for your good. I don't care where it comes from. I don't care if it's the 8th chapter of Romans or the First chapter of James, it's in here for our benefit. Grace preachers need to preach out of James. There's a verse right in the middle of it, though. James chapter 1, uh, that he tells us, verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I'm confident that there's a lot of people who don't like to read the book of James because they don't like what they're reading. And I'm also confident by me saying this and bringing to... to thought and bringing to mind some of these things that are written in here, that there's probably something going to happen within the next few days while I'm at work or I'm at home. And I'm going to forget this verse. And I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what it says. And I'm going to make a fool of myself in the mess of any situation I'm in. But nonetheless, the, the, the verse says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Because of the influence of social media in our society, this verse has been turned all upside down. For, for what really happens in our public market here is that people are not as much swift to hear as that they only half hear. I don't know if people don't remember what was said 
if they don't listen to what was said or if they don't remember to listen to what was said. But people most often nowadays about half listen to what is actually being said. They half listen. They half hear. They're very quick to speak. And of course, people nowadays are very quick to be angry. I don't know that there's been any more trouble in the family or in the church than a lack of communication. Let every man be swift to hear. I'll only be swift to hear what you have to say if I value you as a person and I value what you have to say. The rudest thing that anybody can do is interrupt somebody while they're talking because you've already figured out what they have to say. Y'all ever had a conversation like that? They already know what you're going to say, and so they answer before they actually hear the entirety of the matter. Nowadays, people read something on Facebook, and they read it about halfway. And the first thing they start doing is typing away. Sin! And then they read what they wrote. I'm confident that if Santa Claus read a lot of what people wrote, he'd bring them dictionaries, number one. And number two, he'd probably bring them a whipping. We are uh, infected with this little member that's in our mouth, this tongue that James describes in other chapters. Here the admonition is to be uh, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's another uh, admonition to this, or along these same lines. Uh, Ecclesiastes and chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says in verse 1, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth. And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in the heaven and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. If you've ever tried to reason with a fool, you'll know it's a pretty useless task. If somebody's got their mind already made up in the midst of your discussion, they're not listening really to anything you have to say. They're just ready for you to stop talking so they can tell you how wrong you are. 
this is why debate uh, in the public square has just left the building. There really is no debate anymore or arguing. You can argue and not be angry. You can just present a point counterpoint is really what argument is. It's not done anything to do with wrath and anger. Uh, it's just a differing of opinions and, and how do we work through this? But most times it is just left the public square because really if you if you point out I'm wrong, there that's a flaw in my character and I can't live with that. Uh, preachers tell me all the time, I'll oh, come preach for us. Uh, you know, if you've got some of the part of the truth that I don't have, I'd love to hear it. No, you don't. I, will, I hope that I will forever remember what Brother Darren Owen said when he was here. Is that people don't want to hear the truth. People don't want to seek truth. By nature, people do not seek the truth. They seek someone to assure them that what they believe is the truth. He says, when thou comest to the house of God... Keep thy foot and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. And the sacrifice of fools here is, number one, he says, be not rash with thy mouth. Let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Um, none of us have ever disagreed with God, have we? We've never had a situation in our life that's been a bit puzzling to us and we've never disagreed with God, have we? Sure is quiet on that point right there. I see why now grace preachers don't preach from James. Ain't a whole lot of amen into a lot of this. Uh, I, I, I get put out with God quite a bit. God doesn't do things the way that I want Him to. Uh, he, he doesn't work out things the way that I think they ought to be worked out. And He doesn't do things on my timetable. And that really is a thoroughly irritating thing. Uh, let me give you a, another little thought here in uh, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18 like to notice the 21st verse. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Well, they that love it, love what? Well, he's putting for us two options here. Death and life. And whichever one you love the most, you're going to eat the fruit thereof. Uh, this is not a text to tell sinner friends that eternal life is in the power of your mouth and if you'll just accept Jesus, you can go to heaven. That's not anything to do with this. This is a practical text. This is a practical text to remind you and me, every one of us, that we can live a defeated life, or we can live a successful life depending on what comes out of our mouth sometimes. 
Um, I've got a curious job now. <clears throat> Don't cut grass anymore. I now install furniture, mostly in businesses. And the most curious thing about my job is how people want to continue working in their office while I'm installing furniture in their office. I'm removing the desk they're using and I'm putting in a brand new desk. And I'm constantly reminded, don't unhook my computer. It can't be unhooked. I must still work. Yeah, but all the wires are running down these holes here, and they go through the back of the desk and all around anything, but I can't unhook everything. You're going to have to stop working. And it's amazing the number of times I have to explain this to people. It's amazing the number of times that I showed up. We actually showed up one time. I, I, I probably told you all this, but uh, we showed up, and we, we were doing... Uh, a rather large installation at a, at a business south of town here, uh, and we put in two desks. Now, we put in the furniture that's, that's just like the desk in, in my downstairs office here at church. That's that same type of furniture. Uh, you got a desk in the front, you got another little desk that sits behind it in my downstairs office. Well, there's also a little portion that can go between those two desks and call a bridge, go from one part to the next. Makes a nice big U group, tie it all together. Makes it real heavy to move once you do that. And we went to a place south of town here, installed two desks just like that. Came back the next day to do the rest of the install. And the man says, I'm so glad you're here. I'll be glad when you get done with this because tomorrow we're having the floors redone. Somebody didn't think this through. There's another little company over here that we've been doing work for now for a couple of weeks. We got that situation straightened out, by the way. Uh, there's another little company that we've been doing work for here for the last two or three weeks. They're, they're renovating the inside of their building, so they've painted everything. And right now they are working on the floors. So they called us and said, this is your furniture. You installed it. We need you to come and move this stuff away from the walls so the painters can get to the walls and paint, which that's okay. If all of the offices were as big as the office that I have here at the church, there'd be no big deal to push it all to the middle, right, and, and just paint around it. Right? That makes sense, right? But you've been to some of these places where the offices are no bigger than a broom closet. And we just push it in the middle? Yes. But keep remembering, we have to work. So over the last month, we have moved furniture from one side of the room to the next, to the middle of the room, from this office across the hall to another office that's empty so that they can paint and scrape up the tile that's been there since 1948 and put down new floor. It, in other words, people do things, in my estimation, backwards. Hey, here's an idea. Close for a week and go home. Can't do that. We got government contracts, and we got this kind of contract, and we got that kind of contract. And on top of that, we've got a printer hooked up over here, and we've also added a scanner over here. And I've got my now two monitors. It used to be you just had one monitor. Now you got two. I went to a place the other day, dude had four. You got three. I'd never seen that before. This is crazy. So keep in mind, though, you're not having some obsessive, compulsive person set this up 
If you had an obsessive compulsive person setting up a computer and a monitor or two monitors or full monitors and a scanner and a, a printer and maybe a, now cameras because everything is Zoom and this, that, and the other, I don't know how in the world this batch of wires gets wrapped around each other, tied in a knot, gone through the loop, back up over the desk, back around the other direction, and it's all, and now, oh, oh, some of y'all have a wire, you have a hub on your desk that everything plugs into. Now it all comes back around and plugs into the hub. It'd be easier to just throw it all in the trash, start over. But we got to move it. But be careful what you disconnect. We finally talked them into look. You can't do this. You got to do Somebody got to go home. So they finally went home. Some of them went home. Some of it we could disconnect. But the amount of complaining that I could do, pointing out to them how foolish this is, would be reasonable. You can all nod your head. We agree with that. We, we, th this is the dumbest thing we've ever seen. We were talking about this last night after we were, we were at Tim and Tracy's house talking with people, and I said, some of these engineers, present company excluded, no offense, but some of these engineers that design things nowadays got to be dumb as a box of rocks. Whoever designed a car with a battery underneath a welded arm is obviously not a mechanic who has to work on this. Or even, I think some, you have to take the tire off of some vehicles now to get to the, is that right? You, you got to take the tire off to get to the battery? We had a board meeting and threw up this design and somebody said, yeah, let's go for that. Really? The amount of complaining that I could do in all these businesses that I go to would be reasonable but it wouldn't be long before we'd be out of a job. It wouldn't be long before these folks said, well, we'll just call another furniture company. So I have a choice that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And he that loveth shall eat the fruit thereof. I can go in and I can complain to these people and I can ridicule these people and I can run these people down the wall, but what's it going to do for me? Nothing. Or we can try to come to some agreement so that everybody gets what they want. Fine, I'll compromise. If you'll admit you're wrong, I'll admit I'm right. Right? That's kind of about how the way that life sometimes works a lot of time. I'll meet you in the middle. If you'll just admit you're wrong, I'll admit I'm right, and we can go on about our business. Um. And yet we very, very quickly forget. And actually, I think a lot of people forget. Let me back up. I think a lot of people don't even know. Ecclesiastes 5 says, keep thy mouth. Because God's in heaven and you're down here on the earth. One of the preachers made a statement yesterday that... Uh, right now in our society, that Arminianism is not our biggest problem. Calvinism really isn't our biggest problem. We fought a war for 20 years. It was an unnecessary war in a lot of places. 
Arminianism is not our biggest enemy. Calvinism is not our biggest enemy. I'll argue that our biggest enemy is dead fundamentalism. God's own people that don't even know what the Bible says. Let's go over here. Um, I want to turn to the book of Judges. We read in James chapter 1, where it says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We read in Ecclesiastes 5, where it says, Be not rash with thy mouth. We read in uh, Proverbs 18, Death and life and the power of the tongue, he that loveth it shall eat the fruit thereof. I'd like to turn to a particular interesting passage in the book of Judges. And I'd like to notice a man that I would think was fairly rash with his mouth. Now, <clears throat> the whole story that's told here is, is, is Judges chapter 11. That's, it's not my intent to get into all of this. Um, I do find an, an interesting verse right at the beginning of Judges 11. This is a story about a man named Jephthah the Gileadite. It says he was a mighty man of valor in verse 1, and he was the son of an harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. He was a mighty man of valor, son of a harlot. Gilead's wife bare him sons. His wife's sons grew up. And they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. I think that's an interesting characteristic of Jephthah, just, just to stop and ponder uh, where he came from. I don't care how long the world continues to exist. We're going to have people among us that constantly ridicule people because of where they came from. We're going to have people who look down on other people because of their heredity. Be it skin color, be it gender, be it financial status in this world, it doesn't matter. The biggest problem is not when that occurs in the world. The biggest problem is when that creeps into the church. And you have people saying, well, he's not, he's not really an old Baptist. He's not an old Baptist like us. He doesn't have enough generations of old Baptists in his family for him to be a real old Baptist. That's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You don't get to decide. You don't get to decide how devoted a man is. God gets to decide that. God can use anybody He chooses to use. He can use a man with 14 preachers in his family, or He can use a man who just walked in off the street. That's God's business. It's our business to do what God tells us to. The story occurs here, or the story that happens is, is the people of Ammon come up against Israel. And as they're coming up against Israel, 
they run down here to get Jephthah, and they come up here and lead us. And he's like, why should I do that? Y'all, y'all ran me away. If I come up and lead you, and we win the war, are you going to make me the leader? Are you going to make me the head? And they, they agree to that. They say, that, that's reasonable. We'll, we'll make you the leader. It's a problem that occurs. Verse 29 of Judges 11. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, he passed over Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up at a burnt Jephthah is going to make a vow to God here. I'm sure his heart is in the right manner. I'm sure his heart's in the right place. But I'm going to guarantee you by the end of this chapter, his mouth is not. There's going to come an unfortunate ending in this chapter. Don't read ahead. Don't read the last page of the book and find out how it ended. Let me surprise you. But nonetheless, he vows a vow to God. If you will do this, then I will do something else. Now, he's not the first person to have done this. I, I feel that Jacob did this in the book of Genesis. When Jacob, Jacob flees from his brother one night, and he, he, finds, he finds himself out in, out in the field. And out in this field, he has this dream, this ladder that comes down from heaven. And there's angels uh, descending and ascending upon this ladder what's commonly known as Jacob's ladder dream. Uh, and he wakes the next morning and he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. Um, it's uh, Deuteronomy 32, I think it is, that says that God found Jacob in a desert in a waste howling wilderness. This is what he's talking about when he found Jacob here in this wilderness, here in this desert place. Made him his own, kept him as the apple of his eye. But there after that dream, after Jacob wakes up the next morning, he, he, he says words, something to the effect, if God does this, and if God does that, and if God leads me, and if God goes before me, then I will do this, this, and this, and this. Some people look at that and say, oh, what great devotion of Jacob. And I look at it and I see a liar and a scoundrel bargaining with God is what I see. Now, I have no right to tell you what's in Jacob's heart any more than anybody else does. I just turn over there and I read in the book of Proverbs that says, man, at his very best state is altogether vanity. A human being at his very best state, better than anybody else on the rest of this planet, is still a vain individual. He still wants what he wants. Even if I'm right about any situation, what makes me mad is y'all are wrong. And you won't just do it the way I said. Right? Boy, it sure is quiet this morning. I may have to start amen in myself. Amen. There we go. 
has to turn into a half ventriloquist. Uh, I think what Jacob is attempting to do after his dream, bargain with God. We all have done this. God, get me out of this, and I'll never, ever again fill in the blank. Get up. Jephthah's like, Lord, bless me. And if you give me this victory, when I get back home, I'm going I'm to sacrifice to you the first thing that comes to my front door. Let's read and find out what happens when he gets home. Verse 34. Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. You can read the rest of the chapter and find out that there was a little too much hiatus between this, but ultimately it says in verse 39 that it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. She knew no man. He killed his daughter. Offered her as a burnt offering and a sacrifice unto the Lord. I stopped short in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5 because it does say when thou vowest a vow unto God, you better keep it. Because it's better that you don't vow than that you vow and break your promise, essentially. That's, that's the Phillips version. You say, well, he had to keep it. He made a vow. When was the last time you kept everything you said to God? What he should have done was fallen down and repented for making such a harsh statement is what he should have done. What he should have done was fallen down and repented of this harsh, ridiculous statement that he had made. Our tongue gets us in more trouble than what we realize sometimes. I'd like you to also notice how low he had set the bar for failure. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, Jephthah's an Israelite. There were things that were clean and unclean for them to do. He gets home, pack of pigs, herd of swine come up to his door. He's supposed to offer swine as a burnt offering to God. That had been an abomination to God. God told them in Leviticus, don't offer strange fire upon my altar. Suppose some, somebody just comes up and kindles a fire at his door. Is he supposed to offer that to the Lord? He has set himself up for so many ways to fail. And human beings do the same thing. Human beings look at a situation in somebody else's life and they say, if you ever do that again, I'm going to do 
And I guarantee you, the moment that that left your mouth, the devil was listening. And the devil said, why can't we work on this a little bit? People should be slow to speak and slow to wrath. You say, well, I've got this person in my life. And they are an absolute aggravation and thorn in my flesh and a pain in the neck. What can I do to get them to stop doing what they're doing? Have you ever noticed the uh, extent that people will go to to get somebody to change their life? What are some of the ways that people will uh, what are some of the ways that people will go to to convince somebody they're wrong? They'll yell at them, ridicule them, criticize them, embarrass them, belittle them. That don't work. If the verbal abuse doesn't work, they'll turn to physical abuse. And have you ever noticed in your life how little all that actually accomplishes? And it really just makes the situation worse. The school system, and, and anytime you start bringing up entities, if somebody's in favor of it or part of it, they feel like they're shooting at them. I'm not shooting at them. But the idea of zero tolerance in the school system is stupid. Even God did not create us with that. God created us with the ability within us to know, I have the right to defend myself. Paul himself said, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. God has put within us either a fight or flight scenario. Now, if you're being attacked and you can flee, flee then. You're backed in a corner. You better determine what you're fixing to do. And I have an idea if my son being, was being bullied at school and wasn't nobody doing anything about it. That bully really only, only understands one sort of language. It's either beat or get beat. That's what Goliath understood. Goliath only understood one thing. You either conquer or you get conquered. That's all there is to it. So when you start antagonizing people that are around you, are you surprised when they fight back? You're dealing with a sinful person. You do realize, you do realize that the Lord says that we're to be Harmless as doves, but we're also to be wise as serpents. Not a lot of not a lot of y'all folk in here like snakes, do you? But you do realize I could put a rattlesnake down here in the middle of the floor. Big as you want, it doesn't matter. If you'll stay in your seat and leave him alone, he'll stay in his place and he'll leave you alone too. Y'all aware of that? Once you get over here into his circle, that's when things get ugly. 
When you start riling up the human nature in another human being, don't be surprised that it makes the problem worse. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, um, I'd like to read a narrative that occurs here. And um, it's told in Matthew 17. It's also told in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Here is uh, here's the point that we're going to bring in here a little bit that Brother uh, Charles had made yesterday, and we'll, we'll let you know what that is here when we get to it. But in Matthew 17, most of us know what this chapter is, right? This is the chapter when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. They're up here having a wonderful time on the mountain. Peter, James, and John have no idea what's going on at the base of the mountain, though. And what's going on down there is the disciples of Christ are having difficulty with a man's son who's possessed with the devil. They come down off this mountain. Um, it says here in Matthew 17, verse 14, that they came to the multitude, and there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. Oft times he falleth into the fire, and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. The narrative that's uh, given in Mark 9 is not much different from that. The narrative that's given in Mark 9, though, presents us with a bit of a stirring chaos down at the bottom of the mountain for Jesus comes down and the disciples are being questioned by the multitudes and they're being questioned by the Pharisees. They're being questioned by other people. Evidently, this has been something of an instance that's garnered a lot of attention from people around. And the young man, the, the, the father, uh, comes to him and the statement that he makes in Mark 9 is, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's Mark 9, verse 22. There's something that Jesus points out about his disciples is that he calls them a faithless generation. He's not talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's talking to his disciples. In other words, if you and I were there, he'd be talking to you and me. Matter of fact, he asked him, you know, how, how, long, how long do I have to deal with y'all? How, how long do I have to stay with y'all? How long do I have to continue to contend with y'all until y'all get this point is what he's asking him. And I'm thinking, yeah, probably till I die, Lord. You're not paying attention to this over here. This is a dumpster fire right here. Jesus goes ahead and has compassion. Jesus goes ahead and rebukes the devil. And the devil comes out. But in Matthew 17 and verse 19, um, the disciples come to Jesus apart and they said, why could not we cast him out? <clears throat> this no doubt is perplexing to, to his disciples because you remember there was one time that Jesus sent them out on a preaching trip 
And they came back and they said, well, how did it go? Oh, wow, it's the most wonderful time that we've ever had. We preached the Word and even the devils were subject to us. You remember what Jesus said to them? He said, rejoice not that the devils are made subject unto you. But rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You ever give any thought to why Jesus would say that? He says to them, rejoice not that the devils are made subject unto you. And I, I when I think in... I can't think of an, a better thing to do in this case than these disciples to be able to cast out this devil. There wasn't a better thing that happened to you or to me the day that God spoke new life into us. There's not a better thing to happen to you or to me in this life than God come down and work in our problems. And yet he says, rejoice not that the devils are made subject unto you. Why is that? Because here's the reality in life. Sometimes the devil in life wins. A child is diagnosed with cancer. If God doesn't heal, the child dies. Every funeral you've ever attended You've attended it for two reasons. God is true and the devil's a liar. God was true when He told Adam in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Adam died and the devil is a liar because he came behind him and said, no, you won't. And the entire world, since that time that the devil uttered those words, no, you won't, have constantly been fighting against God and against His truth, trying to prove God wrong. We are having this disaster now of teaching kindergartners about sex education because the wicked people in this world are trying to prove God wrong. This book was in existence for hundreds of years, thousands of years before this generation ever came along and this book will be here long after this generation is dead and gone. And the truth that there's only male and female will always be true. And it will last until God comes back. So when he says to those disciples, rejoice not that the devils are made subject unto you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The devils will come a point, there will come a point or can come a point in your life where the devils overrun you. But there will never come a point where there's an eraser on God's pencil who'll scratch your name out of the Lamb's book of life. But now we're coming to another point here. The disciples look at the Lord and they say, why is it that we couldn't cast out this devil? In Mark 9, there's a little added narrative. I think we'll just turn over there and read that. Uh, for a little bit. In Mark 9, when the man goes through what is wrong with the child, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes with his teeth. Uh, in Mark 17, he said to throw him into the water. Here he says he throws him into the fire and in the water, verse 22. 
Jesus said unto him in verse in, in, in Mark 9, verse 23, he says, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Uh, we've always said, uh, preachers have always said that when you're reading the Bible, never allow an unclear Scripture to confuse a clear Scripture. If there's something in the Scripture that is completely clear, use it to understand the unclear Scriptures. But so often people get to something they don't understand and they'll use it to confuse everything else. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, and I don't intend to explain all this, but I'm just going to give you an example of this. We believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days. That's what we believe. You say, well, how do you get that? How do you know that those days in Genesis were six 24-hour days? Well, there's two reasons. One, you get outside of the Bible. One, you get inside of the Bible. Very cautious in getting stuff outside of the Bible. But if you ask any Jew, you find anywhere that when the word day is preceded with an ordinal or a number, first day, second day, three days, five days, it always means nothing more than a 24-hour span of time. But anytime you have things like when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, that's an indefinite period of time. I would say back in my day, that's an indefinite period of time. It just refers to a portion of time somewhere. But when God said first day, second day, third day, it means nothing more than 24-hour period of time. The second thing inside the Bible is that when God told uh, the Israelites in Exodus, Thou shalt uh, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shalt thou work and do all thy labor, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest. For in six days I created heaven and the earth, on the seventh day I rested. God says, in the same manner that I did this, you do that. How do we do that? Well, all we know were 24-hour periods of time. So six 24-hour periods of time were to work, doing something, whether it be secular or at home. And the seventh day, we're to rest, be in God's house. It's that simple. You say, where's the problem? The problem lies in Genesis 2 and 3, where the Bible says these are the generations of the earth. And somebody says, oh, that means that those 24-hour periods of time are actually generations of time. And they could be a thousand years or a million years. No, I've just given you two clear, good, simple reasons to believe that those days of creation are 24-hour periods of time. The person who takes something and says, well, those were actually six million years, then am I supposed to work six million years before I rest on the million? I'm supposed to work six? See, that, that doesn't work. But what do they do? They take something obscure, something off to the side, and use it to cloud up that which is clear. Say, what the? What in the world have you got? What does that got to do with any of this? He says in verse 24, he says, I believe, help thou mine 
unbelief. So often, we allow our unbelief to beat down our belief and rule the day. So often, we look at a situation and say, this is what I want. I know it's supposed to be this way, but I don't think people ever do this. We come into God. We pray to the Lord once or twice. And it doesn't get fixed immediately. And we say, see, nobody ever changes. I was right. What did Jesus say was the answer to this situation? Jesus said that the answer to this situation here in Mark 9, verse 29, you can read in Matthew 17 also, is that this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. He says this situation in this boy's life, the only way it's going to get fixed is through prayer and fasting. In other words, the Father did the right thing in bringing this problem to the disciples. You've done the right thing in bringing this problem, say, to your pastor. The wrong thing is to blame your pastor if it doesn't get fixed. Uh, you can tell me what's wrong with your car, and I might can diagnose it, but I guarantee you it's not going to get fixed by me. Uh, by the way, you can take your car to the mechanic and he tell you what's wrong with it. If you don't leave it with him or work on it yourself, it ain't going to get fixed. Brother Charles brought up a very important point yesterday of the subject of patience. When he, when he said that, I thought, Wow. Yeah, that's right. And I started thinking, I started thinking, and I think it was the blessing of the Spirit that as he's marching through the Bible, as, as Brother Charles is going through the Bible, talking about the number of people in the Bible who had to wait extended periods of time for their prayers to be answered. We were kind of in sync a little bit. When God told Abraham, you'll bear a son, when did that promise come to pass? 25 years after God said that. This one he didn't mention, but here's Joseph down here in prison. His brothers sell him into slavery to some Ishmaelite slave traders. He winds up down in Egypt. How long did that take? About 13 to 15 years. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years before they got to Canaan's land. The Bible is full of people who were promised something and that promise was not done overnight. One of the longest promises recorded in the Bible, one of the longest, not the longest, but one of the longest promises recorded in the Bible is when, Ishmael, is when Isaac said to his father on top of the mountain, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. 2,000 years later, Christ comes to this planet and goes to Calvary's cross. How long did we have to wait? 2,000 years for that. 
How long have we waited for the second coming of Christ? 2,000 years now. So when you don't get your prayers answered in 10 minutes or less, don't people start getting a little antsy with God? I prayed and it got worse. Yet you prayed and it got worse because God and the devil are listening at the same time. I needed this fixed yesterday. Probably. What right do I have? Putting a stipulation on the work of God. What right does any human being have when they come before the throne of God to say, not only do I want this fixed, but I demand this to be fixed in the next five minutes? You say, what's a serious situation? Well, certainly, uh, Peter is walking on the water. People, Peter starts uh, sinking into the water, and he cries out, Lord, save me, lest I perish. Yeah, yeah, that, was, that was a pretty immediate situation right there. That's right. Let's go back to what we said earlier. How often do people think the way to solve a problem is to yell at the person who's in the wrong, fuss at the person who's in the wrong, gripe at the person who's in the wrong, ridicule the person that's in the wrong, beat them down. Is that what Jesus said? Because a lot of times you want to look at people who've got these problems and I want to look at myself as well. And say, when was the last time I spent great amounts of time in prayer and fasting for those I cared about? And the answer is very little, if any. See, we live in a fast paced society. It ought not to be called fast food anymore, it ought to just be called fat food, because that's about all we get from it. It's usually not fast, and we all get fat. We have microwaves, dishwashers, all these things to do work for us. We were told in the 70s and in the 80s that we're going to have all these time-saving devices and we're just going to live in this euphoric state. We're just going to have so much time to do everything else because uh, the dishwasher is going to do it for us and the microwave is going to do it for us and it's all going to just be done for us. And we're more miserable than we've ever been, aren't we? And you want to look at somebody sometimes when they when they come to you for counseling or they spilled out their problems to you. And you really just want to say, you know, how much time have you yourself spent in prayer and fasting over this issue? And I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that in 99% of the cases, there's been no fasting, very little prayer. The TV is more important. The ball game is more important. Facebook is more important. Snapchat, Twitter, ding dong, who cares? It's all more important. Family's crumbling. The church is falling apart. 
The economy of the world is sinking into the gutter. And what are we doing? Screaming at everybody else that it's their fault, that it's their problem. If you would just fix your life, my life would be 100% better. And you are as big a sinner as I am. And they never get it. If we want things to fix in our family, We've got to be serious about the real remedy for our problems. If we want things to be fixed in our church, we've got to be serious about the real remedy for our problems. It is true that as a sinful, fallen person, I cannot earn God's favor. The Bible tells me that. The Bible tells you that. Your righteousnesses, your good works, are nothing but filthy rags before the Lord. You're not going to earn God's favor. But you know, through obedience in this life, you sure can find a way to walk in God's will, and God has promised, walk in this way and you will be blessed. I've now had, uh, <clears throat> I've now had three weeks of the same message essentially preached to me over the last month. Elder Ronald Lawrence did this at Liberty Church when we had the ordination for Brother Trey Keebles three weeks ago. Uh, two weeks ago, oh, no, no, that was, I don't know when it was. What is this? At Beulah Church, Marty Hoskins used the same illustration. And then yesterday, Shannon Whip said, I said this thing ten years ago. I don't remember saying it. Probably did. It's a wise illustration. But I've now heard the same illustration in the last three weeks. The illustration of a wagon wheel, right? That your life is a wagon wheel. Jesus of the kingdom is the hub. And the spokes that go out from it is, is how you view the kingdom in its relation to everything else that makes up your life. And I'm thinking, wow, three illustrations in three weeks, one more and I get a free preacher. Or a free wagon, something like that. Uh, but then Brother Ronald also preached on seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Three weeks ago, Brother Derek preached on the same thing yesterday. And I think what we so often, the mistake we so often make and we read that text in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. One mistake we make is we think it says, Seek ye only the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. And we think it says... Seek ye first the kingdom of God and do without all the rest of this. You know, <clears throat> people will stay out of church for weird and ridiculous reasons. Because they got to rest up from Monday morning to go, to go slave at their secular job. Because if, if, they don't, if they don't stay home, how in the world am I going to be ready for Monday morning? without even realizing that if you'll just come to church and put God first, 
He can give you everything in two hours that it thought you'd take you eight hours to accomplish. Because those disciples that were rowing across that ocean or rowing across that sea that night, it said they rowed hard, toiling all night long and got nowhere. Then Jesus comes out. He comes walking on the water to them. And if you'll read the text, it tells you that as soon as they welcomed Him on the boat, immediately they were at dry land. They accomplished more in that one instance of time than the entire night combined. Because Jesus was on board. You know, if, if we were to make up in our mind at this church that we're going to pray and fast for this church, we're going to pray and fast for our families, wonder what might be accomplished. wonder how many marriages will be saved if instead of you ridiculing your husband, putting down your wife, you just go off somewhere, shut your mouth, stop complaining, stop cursing, stop yelling. Just go off somewhere. Praying fast. God didn't fix it yesterday. Well, then do it again. I worked on this three days. You know, how long did it take you to get through high school? Twelve years. How long does it take people to get through college? Sometimes four years, sometimes six years, sometimes eight years, sometimes people don't quit. You ever notice how hard people work at something stupid and something secular? I never had to teach my children how to play video games. I, I could encourage them, but I didn't teach them. I taught them how to play Mario. God help me. I never taught them how to play Destiny. I never taught them how to play Call of Duty. I never taught them how to play half the things they do. You know who taught them? They taught themselves because they looked it up on YouTube because it was important to them. People tell me all the time, boy, I w you, that sermon on marriage, I sure wish we'd have preached that 40 years ago. That had been such a blessing. Listen, it's in the same book. I, you, you got the same book I do. And by the way, hint, we're preaching it now and people still aren't listening. They're still marrying the same ding-dongs that they, they ain't supposed to be married to. The Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. People still doing it. Trying to prove God wrong. Trying to tell Him He don't know what He's talking about. Oh, sure wish a preacher would have preached that. I am preaching it. And they're still doing what they want to. The problem is, not that I'm not preaching problem is, people aren't taking serious God's Word. They should be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That fix a lot of what's wrong with this country. Thank you for your